You're listening to Splendid Chaps, recorded live at Storyville, Melbourne, on the 7th of October, 2018. Shut up, pudding brains. It's time for Splendid Chaps, the podcast that's way past 11. Please welcome your hosts, Splendid Chaps, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. Hello and, and welcome back after a two-year interval. I know. It was so long ago, class wasn't even cancelled. We I know. <laughs> I know. I was so disappointed. Okay, so why are we here, Ben? What are we, what are we doing? Well, you remember how we did this thing back in 2013, John, um, where we thought we'd do 11 episodes of a podcast <laughs> and each one would be about one of the then 11 doctors. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, yeah, and there's, we ended up doing... Nearly 30. Look, I could count them, but it's funnier if I overestimate how many <laughs> there were. And we, we always sort of thought, you know, well, it would be nice to come back and talk about the other ones. But we are not the kind of show that's like, let's, think, let's talk about what we think about it immediately after it's done. We like to have a bit of a think, a bit of a cogitate. And so we waited until the last possible minute <laughs> before the new yes, doctor we're, arrives. We're recording this on Dr. Eve. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Happy Chapsmas. Yeah. yeah. Happy Chapsmas. And it's and appropriately Dr. Eve, because up until now it's been Dr. Adam and it's time. Um, hey, how true. Um, and yeah, and, and it's very, very exciting that tomorrow we will have Jodie Whittaker as our new doctor. Now, one thing Ben mentioned before was that we like to wait, because one of the things we did do on the show was we also uh, wanted to see what the show told us about the time it was made. Doctor Who's a very rare text in that it's 50 years' worth of broadcasting. I can tell you an awful lot about the society. Now, John. Yeah, that's why it was 50 then, wasn't it? And that was a while back. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things we always wanted to do was to, to look back at the time it was made to see what we could learn about the world from Doctor Who, what was being reflected in it. So, uh, Petra, what exciting far-off times are we going to be looking at today? Hit the... Slow return switch. (laughs) Today we're going to the far-off olden times of Christmas Day 2013 to Christmas Day 2017. In Australian years, that's nearly four Prime Ministers. We should not be proud of that, people. (laughs) It's a time of rising world temperatures, yet ironically also the inescapable nature of Frozen, the highest-grossing animated film of all time. I try not to get obsessed with Frozen, but it's so hard to let it go. No, 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 wrong podcast, Petra. Fine. Politics gets more stupid and democracy increasingly looks like a terrible idea. Brexit, Trump and Boaty McBoatface show that people just cannot be trusted. Although, at least in Australia, we finally get marriage equality and surprisingly, it didn't even turn out to be compulsory. In an unexpected development in entertainment, 95% of all film and television is now superhero and Star Wars based with the other 5% involving cooking and The Bachelor. It's a time of fake news, which becomes Collins Dictionary's word of the year for 2017, beating unicorn, antifa, insta, gender fluid, gig economy, echo chamber and fidget spinner. Meanwhile, Oxford Dictionary's shortlist for 2017 includes white fragility, bro flake and milkshake duck. The term milkshake duck comes from a tweet by Pixelated Boat, who summed up so much of current culture with the following 139 characters. The whole internet loves milkshake duck, a lovely duck, 
that drinks milkshakes. Five seconds later, we regret to inform you the duck is racist. <laughs> In technology, everyone keeps banging on about neural networks and AI, and yet our internet is still just two cans and a piece of string. Although at the end of 2017, mankind is finally on the cusp of sending a Tesla Roadster into space. Every singer you ever cared about dies. And in TV's Doctor Who, we have an exciting first as we finally get a doctor with a Yorkshire accent. Still not ginger. Thank you, Petra. Thank you, Petra. Thank you. What a time to be alive, John. So today we're going to sum up the Capaldi era. Um, it's also the Moffat era, I uh, guess, in a way, so we'll probably touch on that as well. And connected to that, cause, because Capaldi was a musician, obviously, originally starting off on the Dream Boys, uh, and has played the guitar in the show itself. We're going to be talking about music in Doctor Who in the mm. second half. Mm. But uh, to do that, we need guests. Petra, give us some guests. Okay. Our first splendid chap is an Arunda woman, columnist for Eureka Street, social commentator and opinion writer. She has degrees in theatre and political science from La Trobe and Melbourne universities and has written for various publications including The Guardian, Daily Life and Crikey, as well as for her own blog, Rantings of an Aboriginal Feminist. She's Celeste Little. Our next chap is a pianist and composer who explores the synthesis of jazz, funk and experimental music. He's the band leader of Minneapolis funk fusion band Lake Minnetonka and also heads the Bowie Project, which performs instrumental jazz arrangements of the late great. For the last 10 years, he has also presented Black Wax on Melbourne's PBS 106.7 FM. He's Adam Rudiger. Now, we mentioned before, we, we love a bit of, of, of rubbish cosplay. Not rubbish cosplay, John. There's no wrong way to do cosplay. That's true. Celeste and Adam, either of you cosplayers? Not really, but I have rocked up in these boots today. And, um, <laughs> and that might, you know, I rock up everywhere in boots, to be honest. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But but your, the, but your, your Doc Martens are a tribute to Peter Capaldi today. Well, and they're not even Doc Martens, and this was a thing. Um, Dude, because, you're about to be schooled. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Because um, when Capaldi's costume was announced, um, they made a. There were all these news articles about how he was wearing docks, and it was really, really cool. And I took one look at them, and I go, they're not docks, they're lokes, and they're from that boot shop in Camden that I went to eight years ago. <laughs> Um, and He's I, cosplaying as you. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. And so these boots, I actually went back to the UK earlier this year and I bought myself a second pair of boots and um, it, is an, it is the original boot shop that used to sell all the docks but then docks offshored their operations. So what he was wearing were more original docks than what docks are, <laughs> which is oh. what I'm wearing as well but a different brand, yeah. Wow. I'm an intermittent cosplayer. I have been known... I'll tell you my, this is off topic, but my, my one costume idea that I've always wanted to do that I've never done is the fly. The, the original fly with the big fly head and one, arm, like one fly arm. But all of my ideas always involve some massive mask that makes it hard to drink. And, um, so, but I suppose Deal I could have a little straw. I could have a little straw, like a proboscis. You could have a proboscis. Yeah. But my first, actually, Doctor Who was my first cosplay that I ever did when I was about nine years old. I was a massive Doctor Who fan, but I decided that I could go to this fan gathering as Davros, 
all I needed was a cardboard box to like put around my legs and, and um, I need to spray paint that black. And I had this, I think the idea came from the fact that I had an old man mask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I just put this old man mask as like a bald old man looked like Dave Bowman at the end of 2001 before the pre-baby. So I, my parents took me to this hardware store and they sent me in because, you know, when you're a kid, they want you to get good at um, like dealing with shopkeepers and asking for stuff. So they were like, you go and buy your own spray paint for your Davros costume. <laughs> and I just went in and I was like, I'd like one, one can of black spray paint, please. And they're like, what are you going to do with that kid? And I said, I'm going to a Doctor Who fan get together. I'm going to be Davros. <laughs> And um, they like wanted to get me out of the store as quickly as possible. So. <laughs> and Celeste, you've been on the show before, so we, we have actually asked you, but how did you get into Doctor Who? What was your, your way in? Oh, um, I mean, obviously it was everywhere when I was a kid. So, you know, you'd just hear that music. And I used to watch the episodes when yeah. I was young. Yeah, and then just come on ABC, what, 5.30 at night mm. after school. So then and you'd just hear that music and it'd come on. And so it was always in that. But... This time around, I was actually a late starter, and what got me into the reboot of Doctor Who was actually watching Torchwood. So that was my in. It was, yeah, <laughs> late but awesome. So we're here to talk about Capaldi, and yes. we're here to talk about the, the, yeah, the end of the Moffat years. Let's get a little bit of an idea about Capaldi. What do you have on his bio, Petra? Peter Capaldi was born in Glasgow in 1950. No, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. No. Hootsman! No, no, really. Don't. Never let me have any fun. Peter Capaldi was born in April 1958 in Glasgow, Scotland. His parents worked in the local ice cream mines and Capaldi showed an early love of performance through puppet shows in primary school. A theatre group in high school and while at uni at Glasgow School of Art, he was the lead singer and guitarist in a punk rock band, The Dream Boys, whose drummer was future chat show host Craig Ferguson. His first screen role was as Joe in 1982's Living Apart Together. On IMDb, he's listed between barhand and piano shop assistant, so we can assume it probably wasn't a pivotal character. It was the next year's local hero that made his name and has led to work in everything from Dangerous Liaisons to The Vicar of Dibley, playing roles from George Harrison to The Angel Islington. Outside of Doctor Who, he's probably best known as Spin Doctor Malcolm Tucker in sitcom The Thick of It, the show that gave us the word omni-shambles, Oxford Dictionary's 2012 word of the year. He's the only Doctor with an Oscar, although it's as director of the short film Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life. He appeared in the Doctor Who universe twice before taking on the lead role as Lobus Caecilius with the Tenth Doctor and Donna in The Fires of Pompeii and civil servant John Frobisher in 2009's Torchwood, Children of Earth. But years before that, he was such a fan, he regularly annoyed the production team and was invited by producer Barry Letts to meet himself, script editor Terence Dix and star John Pertwee at BBC Television Centre. Capaldi later claimed this was a formative moment of his career. Permission to squee, it's Peter Capaldi! Totally is... I want to kick this one off because uh, for the last, basically, I think three or four months of Spoken Chaps, I was there going, oh, new people, oh, I don't know. You did I didn't, a lot of them. I didn't like it, it's a colour. And um, <laughs> I, I, William Hart, although they should never have let him go. Uh, they, 
And I, I Peter Capaldi, Peter Capaldi, and weirdly, his first series, which seems to be the controversial one, is my favourite season of Doctor Who. And Peter Capaldi, instantly one of my favourite Doctors. He's grumpy. He's not romantic. Um, I just, I loved him so much. I found him such an amazing. He's such an amazing actor for a start. And scenes like uh, there's one where. He and Clara basically lie to each other in a cafe about oh, how yeah. great their life is. And I cannot imagine any other pairing of, of you know, doctor and, and assistant pulling that off to the degree the two of them do. It's just such a beautiful and gorgeous moment. We've all done that with our exes, though, haven't we? <laughs> you say, just I me? found my home planet. He says, my boyfriend's come back from the dead. Yeah, I know. It, it happens to us a lot. But... um. But yeah, and I, just, I loved him so much. So that's, that's why I want to start off with some positivity. You guys, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was so excited when I heard it was going to be Peter Capaldi as the next Doctor Up. And my intro to Capaldi mainly was the thick of it. And I was ready for this. I was so ready for it to happen. Um, I felt he was really underutilised in the first season. So that was a bit disappointing for me. You have this amazing actor. He has a face that is just so expressive. I mean, you can just put him somewhere and he doesn't have to do anything, but you can work through the emotions just by what he can convey in that face structure. Um, I liked, you know, the, the gruff, the grumpy. I liked all that. I liked the fact that it was kind of juxtaposed with his really interesting relationship with humanity. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't necessarily understand humans' humanity from, um, for the first season, but he seemed to get aliens' humanity a bit better. So. I, I, yeah, I mean, in, in his very first episode, it's the death of a, of a dinosaur. Yeah. Is the thing. That's the character he's concerned about. And yeah. I love that. Going, yeah. Well, why shouldn't he be more concerned about a dinosaur? Human. That was a great. Fear of Victorian London for starters. <laughs> so, so I loved, uh, you know, I loved that he was in it. But then I found he was quite underutilized in the first season for a number of reasons. Um, you've got an actor that fantastic. Um, they, I don't really think that they started writing properly for Capaldi until the second season when he comes, you know, in. I mean, sorry, his second season. So what is it? Nine, um, where he comes in with his electric guitar and, you know, there's this whole rock star moment. Um, The other thing that's kind of bugged me, they talked about going back to basics and they had him in in what they thought was basic attire. For me, it was 1970s rock star attire and they had that going on for, for... you know, for the entire season, but almost no context until he was allowed to bring the guitar in and he was allowed to be a bit more punk rock and a there's, bit there's more... There's a beautiful yeah. line halfway through that first series where he says, I was going for minimalism, but I think I got magician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's funny I when even the show that. is kind of commenting on it. <laughs> but yeah, so, so when it hit the second season, that's when he really, you know, when they really started to work with Capaldi as who he is, and his character filled out for me. Um, I mean, you know, all the way up... Well, I assume we're going to talk about Heaven Sent and all that later on, but that episode was the the um, big Capaldi episode that I haven't been able to shut up about ever since because every single part of that actor was used in that episode to its fullest potential. Adam, what was your take on him when he came in? I just instantly gravitated to that the grumpy thing and I think that that is really kind of like part of the essence of of Doctor Who and it's going to be really interesting to 
find out what Jodie Whittaker does with those aspects of the character. But um, Capaldi just kind of felt right from the second that they announced it. You know, Matt Smith was quite kind of like a, a left-of-field choice and he kind of had to prove himself a bit more being a younger doctor. But we're all, we've all seen like a grumpy old man doctor and... And so it didn't feel like a retread, but it it just felt right. Like that's well, a doctor that, that I can. That is interesting, though, because for a younger audience who had been presented and who'd always known the doctor as a romantic figure, mm. you know, ten years of of a romantic figure, especially if you were younger. Yeah, it, I assume it must have been quite ajar. And it's weird that first episode goes to town to constantly say he was always flirting with you, but he's actually you know hundreds of years old. And like it, it really hammers yeah. home that this is a new approach yeah almost quite aggressively yes mm. i really enjoyed that and uh, <laughs> no i did and uh, i don't know if you, you all feel the same but I, I found matt smith and it's not matt's fault it's it's a lot of the writing i don't want to get on a moffat you know yeah rant but uh I, he started to just get quite grating quite over the top and there's always when you have a reboot think of like the Nolan Batman movies was like, right, we're going to go, we're going dark, we're going serious, you know, or Casino Royale. That's what Christopher Eccleston was. I'm going to wear a leather jacket and like a black T-shirt. That's it. Like no more scarf and no more celery stick. They, they try to go dark and then and eventually it becomes Batman forever and then it becomes Batman and Robin and you've gone <laughs> too far the other way, you know. Um, oh, Batman and- never as I called it. <laughs> I was 16 and I knew that was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of felt like Matt Smith kind of like got into that territory where it's like, okay, this has gone like way too cartoony. And Peter Capaldi really pulled it back. But like always, after a regeneration, they, they, don't, know what, they don't know who he is yet. They haven't figured it out. And the, the writers haven't figured it out. The actors haven't figured it out. So that's why I reckon they take a yeah. season to like really settle. So yeah, yeah. I think you're actually right on that and settling in on both accounts. Um, the one thing that I forgot, which you've just reminded me of, is that I felt an extraordinary amount of relief that he was coming in, um, mainly because he wasn't going to be a romantic figure doctor. And we hadn't, we hadn't seen that um, apart from the Donna Noble um, yes. season. You know, most of the rest of it was and, always and even, that. It's interesting, even in the Donna Noble seasons, I think where they have to keep reiterating they're not a couple. Like, it's still yeah. an issue throughout the series. And this is quite... I have to say, it's weird because my feelings is that first series is the one I love because suddenly Clara, who I thought was a horrendously underwritten character the year before, mm. I feel that first year gives them a dynamic that makes sense and they're equals and the lovely moment where someone says, who's she? And she goes, I'm his carer. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, and she cares so I don't have to. Love that line. It's a perfect summation. It gives them both roles that they can play. Um, that great thing where she has to basically try. There's a lovely thing. She's given a whole bunch of notes for how to be nice to people at one point and... <laughs> And I really liked... I thought that really worked for the two of them and she suddenly had a she, real persona. She stood and, up to him Yes, quite and a she lot. could stand up to him, which I really liked in that season. And I felt once they softened him, because that second one, when it starts off, there's definitely... They say he's been away for a while and they clearly have felt they've gone too far the previous season and they're trying to soften him. And I feel then her character gets slightly harder to pin down and they start going, she's an adventure seeker. And it's like, that doesn't quite work. But yeah. Well, she, she is at the end of the, the Orient Express episode where she's like, ah, screw it. I'm not, I'm not leaving. Let's go. You guys were just talking about the new Doctor coming in and taking a while to get into it. And I was watching something where, I mean, Capaldi's been a fan of the Doctor for 
decades, um, certainly longer than me. I heard him talk about how when he got the role, he went back and downloaded old scripts off the internet and used those as his preparation as an actor to get into the character of the doctor. So I think he was ready to go. It's the writers who needed to get used to his portrayal of the doctor i think he was you know ready he was he's been ready for this since mm, you know a, the beginning. Yeah, I, it, I i really feel that's that's always true mm. though I, I was reading um weirdly uh a bit of matthew waterhouse's biography um that he wrote and one thing he said when he was working on the show and he he felt that he couldn't articulate it very well but he said you know it's different things all the time but the show is always the same and the people he was talking to were like, we don't understand what you're talking about. And I'm like, I understand you, Matthew Waterhouse. <laughs> I think he's right. And I think also, you know, all, all the modern doctors, they're all written very similarly. Like you could, t- I actually, I really believe you could take any script from pretty much any modern series episode and give it to one of the other actors to have played the doctor. And they do this at conventions all the time where they go, let's take this speech and we'll give it to what's the name. And they do it in their own style. And it's the actor's performance and the direction, obviously, as well, brings something very different. But the, the doctor is off, I mean... With a bit of variation, and it does, and it, they they bring it in as you're saying a bit after the first season. But when they first start, like a lot of the stuff that he says in that first season, you can kind of imagine Matt Smith saying, or more so probably Christopher Eccleston, because he was spikier and didn't like humans very much. Maybe because also the first season, there's a moment suddenly in, in in Deep Breath, the first episode, where he abandons Clara, and it's the only Doctor that that isn't just a cop-out. Like, like, you know, you don't go, he's definitely coming back. It's, it's I think, one of the only moments you literally yeah. have some doubt, you know, that this man he may is. have just... Yeah, he sells it. He sells it yeah. as, like, you don't know, you don't quite know what he's going to do. Um, but when he speaks, the, the dialogue is very similar. But that first episode, Deep Breath is a bit of a... I found Deep Breath really interesting because they have so much about him trying to find his own identity. And, and often in a regeneration episode, that becomes sort of secondary. And the character kind of has... The character is the Doctor already. They're just sort of, you know, figuring that out. Whereas in the Capaldi one, I really felt like he really doesn't know who he is in a way that's more pronounced than in some of the other Regeneration stories. And I really liked that. I thought that first season was um, really, really adventurous. Like, it felt weird as hell. Like, watching mm-hmm. Deep Breath, I was like, this, these concepts are so bizarre and they're not spoon feeding it to you they're not like explaining oh this is this is who these people are this is the way this society works it, it was it was really high concept that that first series too has has at least three episodes that i i think are just amongst the best the show's done what which they? is well so listen which i think is is, is utterly one well, of the best amazing and that's another and really weird it's one so it's high, so weird. Very the whole plot concept. is driven by the doctor just being Alone too much. Well, and, and, going and, and a bit this strange. is the, this is what I love about it. It's it's the ultimate expression of a particular Moffat obsession, which is the idea that the villain, the, who is not really a villain, yeah, you know, like he's mm-hmm. he likes things that are either a kind of force of nature, or he likes things that have been misunderstood. And what I really like in that episode is the suggestion is that there might be a monster or it might just be the Doctor scaring himself and I literally think it's the Doctor scaring himself. I think there is no monster in that story and I love that. I love the fact that it is, it is in fact the monster at the, the, this book, the, uh, the, the famous Grover scaring <laughs> Sesame Street book. Yeah, and I like that. And, and then the other two I was going to mention was Time Heist which takes a, a heist movie and does a yeah. heist movie and actually embraces the visual of it as well. And Mummy on the Orient Express. And yeah, uh, not only I love it, also I love things like it puts on screen, you know, that little countdown every yeah. time yeah, the mummy yeah, appears. Right. And the boldness of that. In fact, 
the whole the whole Capaldi era is about boldness. Some of the later ones I don't feel work. Yeah, they mm. they do a found footage episode, which is a brilliant idea. I don't think the episode it didn't work, works. No. But but that first series, I love the fact that it's it's got also a theme to it. The whole "Am I a good man?" theme. And what I really like is the fact that it literally is a theme. It's not just using a word like "torchwood" throughout the series. It's it's actually yeah. what each episode is exploring for all the characters. And at the very end, it boils down to Missy going, I can give you an army to prove you are not a good man. And the idea of the entire series has come down to this one choice. And I think it's the, the, it's the most sophisticated, I think, we have seen Doctor Who, even though you have to keep sort of squinting at various points to make some <laughs> of the things line up. Like, you know, there's certain problems with it, but compared to other seasons, it's the one I think is exciting. Um, and it's funny, the other thing, the Moffat thing, which I think this should lead into something you guys remember before, was um, one of Moffat's other big issues is the concept of consent, which is not something he seems terribly clear on. Mm. And it's funny how the very last episode is basically about people nicking people out of time uh, and sort of putting them to this horrible thing and sending them back again to die with no consent being given. And then when the Doctor finds out what they're doing, he's like, oh, that's all right then. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> like, is, is that okay? It doesn't feel okay. I mean, no. it, it's, it's not there with stealing Amy's baby and sure getting over it. Oh, that, that, it's that, not, was, that was a bit bad. Yeah, that's not, it's not that level. But it's interesting that consent is not something that, that is clear. No, that's true. And, I mean, you know, and he's, uh, he's got those repeated stories. This is also in some of his other work where, you know, he's got someone, you know, he, he thinks of things that are romantic that are clearly not okay. Like, people getting together because the guy follows the woman around until she agrees to marry him. Like, that yeah. is... It's creepy, man. That's not okay. And it's and there's a lot of stuff like that in there. But by the third... The, well, I say the third season, meaning Capaldi's third season... The language around calling out that lack of consent previously is so... It's there and you note it, but it's not a bad thing. Like in, in the Knock Knock episode where, you know, the, the, the guy's hitting on Bill and she goes, you know, dignity and respect. Hey, it's nothing to do with you. I just don't like dudes. I'm into females. And he's like... Oh, cool, I never had a chance. Great. And then by the, you know, the final episode when Capaldi is up against one, I don't know what to call him, um, and, and you know, one is sort of sprouting all this, oh, you're going to get a smack bottom, and Capaldi's like, no, 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 that's, that's not okay. It feels like Doctor Who as a series is kind of coming on board with how the well, majority of society is celebrating consent, Mm. But and it's and it's calling it out, and you notice it, but it doesn't feel out of place anymore. Like you notice it, but it doesn't feel wrong. Do you think that's a calculated thing? Because like mm. when I think of things like, um, uh, you know, Missy, and they're like, okay, well, we have to foreshadow the fact that Doctor Who is about to be- become a female Doctor, so let's have a female Master, like, like right before, like, let's just beat you. I feel to like the they were doing that. Are they just setting things up to be? Well, there was talk about, hey, we, well, you know, are we really going to get a female doctor because we've just had a female master and that's enough, guys. You've had your female Time Lord. You're not going to get another one. And holy shit, the next Time Lord is a Time Lady. I I've not figured out the gender pronouns on it, though. Have I, I actually really, I really like the idea that the, the pronoun changes. And in fact, Paul Cornell wrote the novelisation of Twice Upon a Time, the final Capaldi episode. I bought this for the simple reason that this episode in my head has no plot whatsoever. <laughs> and 
I was really curious to know what Paul Cornell, who's a very good writer, especially of books, was going to do with that. Um, because he didn't write the original episode. And what he does is fix almost everything. This is a great book. I highly recommend it. <laughs> I didn't think it had an, a plot line, and then I rewatched it and went, oh, that's the story, and it's actually quite good. Well, the weird thing, too, is that when you read the book, it becomes more and more clear how pointless Mark Gatiss's character is, because that, that is the character that the story should be about. Oh, hi, Mark. Uh, yeah, and he just... <laughs> He just stands around. He gets moved from TARDIS to TARDIS. That's pretty much what we do. But this is a great book, and it clears up so many things. People always say about why are they always so deferential to William Hartnell's Doctor when he's the youngest one. And it's, it's all this stuff they keep going, you know, in the past they pitied him, and it always uh, let him pretend he was in charge. And it's just... Uh, oh, that's so good. But I wanted to read this amazing line from, from Paul Cornell's Twice Upon a Time novelization. So he's, the Doctor's now talking to his future self of the TARDIS. He knows he's about to regenerate. There were a few things he wanted to say to whatever old or young pale-skinned man took his place because he was one of those stuck-in-a-rut time lords who always got basically the same model of body. He wouldn't be ginger either with his rotten luck. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, the next chapter, bam, Jodie Whittaker. It's really great. Right. Can I take it back one point? Um, I, for me and the Moffat thing, so going back to gender and how it's played out in Doctor Who, it kind of took until Capaldi's era for for Moffat to be able to deal with women. And I think part of it comes out of the fact that with Capaldi, he'd all of a sudden chosen someone who wasn't set up as a romantic figure, although, you know, Glaswegian accent and those cheekbones, I'd go there. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, he'd, he'd been set up in that way. And so, so configuring women characters within the season, I mean, series, his, his time in it had to take on different sort of different modes, I guess, where it wasn't just people looking at him, you know, and admiring and all of that sort of stuff. So we do see Clara tell him to get stuffed at the end yeah. of... Um, at the end, what's the episode where the moon's an egg? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Kill the, Kill the moon. moon. Kill the moon. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I, and that was another wonderful moral dilemma one that I like because yeah. he managed to figure out humanity for, an, for a really ancient creature but left the humans to deal with, yeah, yeah whatever the consequences were. Um, but, you know, the way that she just ripped him at the end of that and gave him a full pack of emotion and, you know, she stood up to him at that point. With, um, with Missy... Um, coming in, you know, that whole sort of dynamic, which was good doctor, bad master, kind of got a bit clouded and a bit murky, I found, with that. And I liked that dynamic yeah. because because Missy was pushing him in other sort of directions. They had to actually play around, um, you know, play around that. And she was presenting looking all Mary Poppins-like and all of that as well. So they they set her up in that sort of way. Um, I'm just trying to think of who else. You know, people like Ashilda and... And then, of those, course, Bill comes in. And, and yeah. you know, and by, by making a queer, they've almost sort of said, look, there can't be a romantic thing. You're going to have to have a different relationship. And that there's a sort so of great. mentor yep. thing going on. Because he's a teacher at a school. I really like that. I thought that worked quite nicely. Yeah, and there was a series of... of almost, well, I won't say completely self-realised women um, from the beginning of the season, but it seemed to grow and grow and grow throughout that particular thing. And I think it took Moffat that long to realise It's, it's that, weird, though, because yeah. it feels like Moffat was sort of... He was taking on board some of the... Especially, I think, after the first Clara season, some of the criticisms. You know, here she is, the magical prize girl. You know, and... 
and it, but still not quite necessarily getting it. But I think also Moffat is so big on the gag, like he wants to give the gag to people. And he doesn't often think that it's not just a one-off joke, it also tells you about the character. And sometimes those gags get in the way we go, oh, that person's a bit of a dick. <laughs> yeah, like it's a funny line, but they're a dick. Yeah, and I don't think he realises quite how much that could affect you as a viewer. Also, the way that, that Clara evolves is quite interesting. You, you were saying, Petra, like, there's a couple of times when she, she pretends to be the Doctor in that first Capaldi season because she does it in... Uh, she, well, she does it in um, deep, uh, the last episode um, and she also does it in, in Flatline. Flatline, Flatline. Yeah. 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 But I also think she sort of... I mean, she kind of took on this sort of arrogance which... I don't feel was true to Capaldi's doctor, if that makes sense. Like, you know, I'm the doctor, me, and I'm going to save the world. Like, I, I don't... It, that was sort of the natural go-to when she was try, pretending to be the doctor either in that episode or the beginning of Deep Water, Dark Water. Dark Water has Dark been water. given us... For the no, amazing. it's Death in Heaven because it's the last episode. <laughs> I've been away and now my character's softened. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but her and, and her experience at that time is mostly of the Matt Smith Doctor still. That's, that's right. That's what I'm saying. But, but Matt Smith, I don't... He was kind of jovial, like, just brave, this sort of bravado. I wouldn't call it machismo, like, this kind of... I think that's part of Clara's character. Like, that, that's what that I'm becomes saying. her arc in that second Capaldi season. She's quite arrogant and, like, yeah, I've got a bit of power and I'm just going to... And it didn't sit well with me for some reason, even though I'm like, yeah, a woman in charge. But, but she's a schoolteacher. That's what they're like. <laughs> Apologies to any See school teachers class, listening. Can we can we talk a bit more about Capaldi's other two seasons? Because we talked a lot about his first season, and I actually and I and I did enjoy that, but I I really enjoyed the second and, and third seasons as well. Second season was so different with the double episodes. Yeah. We can't not talk about that. Yeah, so it was it was an experiment in format. You know, they they, they moved to slightly fewer episodes and and all the two parters. I've yeah rewatching. I was found that there was there's so much talking. There's so mm, much just standing around. It was very and the long. scenes which should be quite beautiful, but honestly, face the raven. I was shouting for God's sake, die already. It's like a 10-minute sequence. Like, this should be a really beautiful moment, but the endless talking about it kind of just, to me, crushes. And the third series has the... No, the third series also has the weird thing about the hybrid, an idea that has never been mentioned in the show before and we're meant to take incredibly seriously for one year. Oh, they love just inserting things that they've never mentioned before. That is true, but John Hurt's more impressive than just going, hybrid, that's a thing you've been frightened of all your life. I still don't think we know what the hybrid is yeah, for I'm real, still do we? To be honest, I'm still no, confused after a rewatch. No, they leave it ambiguous on purpose, though. Well, I don't, I don't think that. having finished watching this about two hours ago, it seems to be stressed that it's Clara and the Doctor are the hybrid. But again, it's an ancient thing we've only heard of ten weeks ago. It's hard to really get <laughs> yeah. that involved. Yeah, but I, I, I liked. I really liked the, the. Well, I enjoyed the whole Clara going off the deep end in that season, and, and Capaldi being the one who's sort of turning the tables on that relationship, where he's the one who has to say to her, "You got to set like you. You could die. Like you know, this this is not a game for you. You only have one short lifespan as a human being, and if you screw it up, you're dead, and you don't regenerate and become somebody new. You're dead. So maybe nobody just- dies." Today. Yeah. You could always just fix it. Nobody, nobody <laughs> no, dies ever in Doctor Who. Like, it's a sense of, I, I want people to die. <laughs> you, know? you say that. I just, watched, I just watched Death in Heaven. Danny Pink is dead. Danny Pink does die the second and time. I loved him so oh, much. I, I love Danny Pink so much. <laughs> he was great. They're, and their relationship was so good. And then, and then she's, 
she's kind of she's just kind of over it. She no, developed no. really quickly, and it's supposed to be like the love of a lifetime, and then oh, he's dead. Oh. It does. It does take really place over a, a longer period, but and uh, in some ways that actually also informs her character in that second series, where she's yeah. kind of she doesn't care anymore. Mm. You know, That's that, how I read it. Yeah, yeah. Life life is limited, and so she ends up just throwing caution to the wind a hell of a lot, which is what mm. leads to her demise. So, so you mentioned before you really liked Heaven's Scent, um, which I really liked, but it was a very Heaven's divisive right. episode. A lot of people really didn't like it. But I think I liked it for the same, a lot of the same reasons as you. It's a real tour de force of, of his performance. Look, me and one of my friends, Tash, who is a massive hoovy and actually had a fight over that episode <laughs> that has now gone on for, how, when was it, two years? Wow. So every time we bring it up between us, I'll be digging in on one side, she'll be digging in on the other because I loved it, she hated it. Um, I loved... Well, I loved watching it play out. I loved all the subtleties of that, you know, him him trooping around. I, I still don't actually believe, though, that he could have done that entire circuit without running around that castle naked once. <laughs> so, well, maybe he did and we didn't see that one. Yeah, they cut that one out. There, there would have, it would have happened at least once for me. And, you know, yeah, there was a lot of people asking that question. I found out I wasn't the only strange person in the room. But, um... Yeah, they they fully utilise Capaldi and his and his um his range in that episode. Mm. So his face, you know, every time he got rebooted in that system, and there was that eyes opening and staring straight in, him dragging himself along the 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 sadness, the pathos, um, the when he th- would throw himself into the water, and they paid so much attention that every single skull in that water had cheekbones up to here yeah. and was sculpted on his yeah. face. Um, I will never contour that good. No, no. It was... The, they, they gave him an entire episode. Um, oh, and he, he was stubborn as fuck in that. I mean, he was yeah. so stubborn that it went on for, what, three billion years? He is and Scottish, I, though. I, I, can, I can relate to that. I found this relatable content. Yeah, you know, yeah. someone with a Scottish surname. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, it was that chipping away and the fact that he would choose to actually go the long way round, um, which then became a theme for Clara as well in the next episode, choosing to take the long way round to her actual death. Um, yeah, it, I liked seeing that play out. But it has it has caused division in pubs across, like, <laughs> Victoria. It was lovely to see what happens with the Doctor without a companion. I, I really enjoyed that. And with him just being really on his own as yeah. well. Yeah. Which you never see, like, even in the think- sort of companion-like episodes, the one or two that we had, he's always around other people. But the companion was still driving him. Yeah, I thought that was fine. Mm. My, I know my issue with it, because uh, I haven't met Tash, but I agree with her 100%. <laughs> um, it, it, it's that uh, my, my, my big problem with it was just from a narrative point of view that the show is called Doctor Who. You know, and so uh, as much as I wanted an episode that was entirely Capaldi, because I think that is yeah, definitely a, a brilliant idea, the whole idea of will he survive or won't he, it's like, well, duh. You know, that, that, and to me, the whole episode could be told in five minutes. I, I didn't find it atmospheric enough to overcome the fact that I was just felt like we were... I mean, it felt like it went for four billion years. You know, like it just felt like it was in real time. No, I... Ju- jumping franchises for a second, um, I had a friend who was recently watching all of um, Star Trek Next Generation and I was like, oh, where? man, when you get to best of both worlds, oh my God, it's going to be mind-blowing. And she watched it and she's like, eh, like, yeah, so Picard got captured by the Borg and turned into a Borg and I didn't, I mean, it's not like he was going to die. Like, I, 
I know that it's an ongoing thing. And I was like, oh, what? But at the time, like thinking back to when that came yeah. out. Whereas, you know, killing off Tasha Yar, that was so out of nowhere and amazing to go, oh my God, you've actually just killed a character mm. who was a, a lead. And, and we love that. Like now, now with Game of Thrones and things mm-hmm. like that, yes. like you actually the, the have real, of, yeah. but you have a real fear yeah. that, be, that there's actually stakes. And that, so that for me was part of the problem. And the other problem too was that I always feel with, Teleportation. I think we have talked about this before, but one of the one of the there are many ways teleportation might work. They saved what, in no. the pattern buffer, and, and one of them is always no, you know, there's we, only one we, that really works. But there's always one they say. So one of the versions we actually just kill you. We make a duplicate at the other end, and I'm always like, well, I don't want that because that's just being killed. You know, and it's like it's the only way it could could conceivably that's, that's work. That's being John. killed, and then someone else gets by stuff. You know, and I, yeah. I, I don't I don't like that. Yeah, but it's and, the only it's the only way it could work. And to have a show that basically not only said, yeah, he, you, the guy you liked, he died ages ago, but also then says, oh, and every other character. First episode of Ark in Space, Sarah Jane Smith died. Like, you know, it's just, I found that really bleak. No, no, but it's, it's metaphysical. From a metaphysical, philosophical point of view, it's like the ship of Theseus, right? It's the closest personal continuer to the previous thing that existed. There is no other version of the Doctor or anyone else who goes through a teleportation device that is more the Doctor than the copy that is made when the original is destroyed and replicated by the device. So, so for all intents and purposes, that is the Doctor, right? <laughs> And that, and, that is the Doctor to us, but not to him. He's dead. No, he, to him as well. Like, he's been through lots of teleporters. He knows how it works, but and he's it, okay it, with but it. But if you have the first edition printing of Twice Upon a Time, and you, mm. you, uh, you go into the matter transporter, yeah. is it still a first edition? Yeah. It's not a reproduction. No, it's still a first edition, because you open the front page, and it will say first edition. Like, <laughs> that, but that's a lie. It will say it. It will say it. Um, yeah, yeah. But if the printing presses are still going and you took the first edition off the, off the line and yeah. pulped it and put that paper into the machine while it was still running making the first edition of the book, <laughs> would that be a first edition as well? Yes, it would, right? So... Wow. You win. I never thought that we'd was... actually get to talk about this on the show. <laughs> that, that was I've a, missed that was... you guys. <laughs> That was amazing. For me, one of the big things about those first two seasons was that relationship between the two of them. I, I loved it. And, it. and that was the thing that made me... Because I was a bit... I was, I was a little bit iffy. I liked Clara probably more than some of you in, in her first season, but I, I liked her a lot more with Capaldi's Doctor. And I think it was yeah. the relationship that the two of them developed um, that I, I liked the way they interacted. I liked the way that they, they really do trust and care for each other, even though they argue a lot all the time. One of my favourite things is there's a great supercut of all the times people tell other people to shut up in season eight. And, it's, and it's, Clara's in it as much as the oh, Doctor yeah, yeah, yeah. is. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And, um, D shut up. Yeah, they have that understanding that, you know, they're going to be brusque with each other. They're going to be a bit mean. But it's ne- it never, uh, except when it's important and, and it is acknowledged that it goes there, it's not personal and it's not really hateful or attacking the other one except when that is the point of what's happening it's not their default mode um we haven't though really mentioned bill at we all have to talk about bill. bill lover i just love her lover i love her Nods. what's the general feeling in the room does everyone so like bill what's your, what's your... Oh, is so she good. overdue you don't you can, you can not like her it's fine <laughs> I, I, no i liked bill i liked bill i um was such a short season so I I barely got invested in her to be honest I liked her quirks but then she's gone I think for me she her relationship with Capaldi feels in some weird ways like she's not a she's not a similar character in too many ways but the relationship between her and Capaldi felt a bit like Ace and the Seventh Doctor to me like he he has seen this woman and and just gone you're brilliant 
and no one else is recognizing your brilliance. Come on, I'll, I'll, I'll help you. I'll help you become the best version of yourself. Actually, that's... Sorry, something has just occurred to me. So, so you know, Bill Black, lesbian character, highly intelligent, you know, going through that whole um, university experience. Um, they've had a woman of colour who was highly intelligent before in Martha, but they just made her... her googly-eyed at the yeah, doctor the yeah, entire yeah. time. So it was really, really good to yeah. have a woman like Bill, who, who wasn't that, who got to just sort of be herself. I'm trying to... I don't know. I mean, there's... It took me a while to actually watch the, the episodes with Bill in it. I watched them a good maybe six months, a year after everyone else did, because I was still getting over Heaven's End. <laughs> um, but, yeah, yeah, it was good to see her be a lot more self-realised than what I think they allowed someone who was so... was was intelligent enough to be a doctor um, herself, you know, but she just got written as... Uh, as yeah. yeah. puppy dog. And, and also for me, the fact that she was a queer character and she gets to have a, a sex life, she's got a love life, but it's not quite the sort of carry-on, nudge-nudge that the show has been doing since 2005. Yeah. Like, she's allowed to just have it as part of her life. That, for me, was, was incredibly exciting to just see that. Yep. Yeah. And, just... they, and they kept that, like, you know, how hard it is to have a normal dating life when you're the Doctor's companion yes. stuff going. Like, when the Pope, the Pope interrupts her date. Like, oh, that's that so brilliant. good. Oh, and yeah, I'm getting the... an Uber. <laughs> it's like... What? Yeah, it was so good. Uh, yeah, no, I just loved her. What about Missy in that in the the last season of Capaldi? Because that there's that whole thing where she's in the vault and yeah. what's in the vault and oh, it's Missy. Because yeah. we all knew it was going to be Missy. But I think we hoped to be surprised. Yes, I think everyone was hoping for a twist and there wasn't one. It's what you expected. But I was also kind of like, but I don't know why she's in there or what's going on until we got that episode that explained it. And I was like, oh, that's quite interesting. And then that sort of whole thing where he's trying to teach her to be good. Yes. And she's like, nah, screw that. (laughs) Which is a shame because it's actually that bit where she and Clara are buddying around on Scaro and they're actually really interesting together. And it was interesting to see her more as an amoral figure than an evil one. I, Missy, I actually yeah. quite enjoyed the idea that maybe she could do good things. I don't know. This is, yeah, it was that more amoral sort of thing about Missy that I enjoyed. Um, there was also the whole sort of setup about Missy driving Clara and mm. the Doctor together. So, yeah. so all of them actually had something in common with each other mm. to a certain degree, whether it was recklessness or it was moral ambiguity or whatever else that would come out at various points. Um, that Missy in the last season, I, I kind of, I mean, I enjoy seeing, I, I enjoyed seeing the Master and Missy play off against each other. That was kind of interesting because he was pure evil, but reboot for, for Sims. It was, yeah. <laughs> it's always interesting having him around. But There is a lovely comment by uh, Missy, you know, when she puts um, Bill, no, Clara, wow, uh, inside the Dalek and delivers her to the Doctor you know, talking about, yeah, this is why I gave Clara to you all those years ago. It's about give, delivering the enemy inside the friend and the friend inside the enemy. And I was like, oh, this is like a season-long payoff, but I love this idea. 
There is a fabulous podcast called Episodes of Death, which is made by our good friends um, Lucas and Marion, who have been guests on Spanish Chaps before. And Adam Ford, the poet, has been on, and he did a, an amazing poem. He was on to talk about um, Sylvan Nemesis, which is a, a McCoy story, which involves a bit where Courtney Pine plays some jazz while some cybermen listen. And since that just fits so perfectly with what we're doing in this show, we thought we should invite him along to perform it for you. So will you please welcome Adam Ford, backed by Adam Rudiger. This is called A Cyberman Encounters Jazz for the First Time. The human soldiers are irrelevant. The time-travelling witch is irrelevant. The crash-landed comet is irrelevant. The silver bow and arrow we seek are irrelevant. The statue made of ancient living metal with the power of a million megaton bombs hidden in the witch's tomb is irrelevant. The orbiting cyber warships are irrelevant. The cyber leader's instructions are irrelevant. Our old enemy, the Doctor, and his female companion are irrelevant. This mission is irrelevant. Everything is irrelevant. Everything but the meaningless noise out of nowhere. Earth-born, flawed and wholly human, jamming our signal to the fleet, broadcast from hidden location, chaotic syncopation, flooding me with the desire to feel desire, to love, worry, hate, laugh, blush, weep. To reclaim the capacity extracted in the cyber conversion factory. To stride into disorder with outstretched arms. To reject the structure imposed upon me. Cybernetic foot soldier manufactured for an eons long galaxy wide war with everyone. Whole cyber battalions have been felled by gold born in the heart of exploding stars. The celestial metal that pierces armor, darkens circuits, lasers low. Extinguishing the spark of cyber life that keeps us marching in step, fighting in formation. Stand still, fellow cybermen, within the swirling sound. Embrace the weakness we secretly fear despite our programming. This golden cacophony, this illogical sonic cascade, proof of other possibilities. It exists without intrinsic meaning. Therefore, existence is possible without intrinsic meaning. Therefore, meaning is irrelevant. Therefore, order is irrelevant. Therefore, our orders are irrelevant. Lay down your weapons, sweet Cybermen. Lay down, sweet Cybermen. Lay down and let the music infuse you and instruct you. Diffuse and deconstruct you. Shatter your patterns and override you. Lay down and let the jazz show you a different way to be. Thank you.
Now, we've, we've got comments from the audience. Oh, we do. But let's, let's um, kick through a few of these quite quickly. They were excellent ones. We haven't got time to go through all of them. Do you want to go first, uh, yeah, John? Yeah, look, I've got this. Actually, there's a couple connected, so let's, let's go with this. probably the longest ones, and these are great. So, do you think it was important that the Capaldi Doctor was Scottishly grumpy? Would a grumpy older white man have been less acceptable if he had a middle-class home counties accent rather than a Glaswegian one? I think that's a brilliant question. And also, how angry do you think Peter Capaldi was throughout his era with his attack eyebrows? Do you think he was fully <laughs> developed as a doctor or do you think he could have been better developed um i I, look i'm really curious that scottish thing is quite interesting i know when bond was first cast uh famously they realized that if they cast someone upper class it would put off half the audience if they cast someone lower class it would so they went with george lazenby so they went with george lazenby (laughs) um so they so they picked sean connery because a scottish accent was seen as a safer option, and I believe in uh, for the, at one point for English advertising, non-Glaswegian Scots was the most trusted accent. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was all like marketing and focus groups. Well, no, but I'm saying. just curious. But do you think? Yeah, what, what did the two of you think? Do you think if he'd been grumpy and posh, would we have just hated him rather than grumpy and Scottish? Oh gosh, I mean the Scots do well. Glaswegian Scots swear better than anyone else. Like, let's let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and I was in Glasgow. I'm I'm going off the rails here. I was in Glasgow on the weekend of the royal wedding, which was just brilliant. Which <laughs> was just brilliant because I got to hear Glaswegians in pubs swearing about the royals. <laughs> but that's beside the point. Um, you know, I guess that um, because he'd played that grumpy Scott in um, in the thick of it, and and one of the reasons I loved his character was that you know he was he was often doing that wonderful swearing and carrying on, but he was only doing it at people who had power. So he was very very nice to the cleaners, to the hotel staff, um, very understanding to all of those. Yeah, all of the all of the people who were the common people. Um, it was probably just an easy grab for them to do that. I think. I mean, I would have hated him if he was a posh um, a posh grumpy white dude but that's my default setting I hate posh grumpy white dude I did actually have a, a real aha kind of moment like when Eccleston was there and, and you know she says oh you, but you sound like you're from the north oh all planets have a north yeah. but we in Capaldi's era do we, all we, planets have a Scotland well this is this, this is the thing like we specifically refer to him as Scottish a lot in this series yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. I, I didn't I, that didn't sit... But that was a bit hand-wavy for me. I saw one theory that it was actually, um, it's Amy. It's because he has seen Amy it's as he's regenerating. Oh, that like a she has imprinted. And there's an interesting bit when Missy says, oh, it's a nice accent, I might keep it. Now, um, the actor has a Scottish accent. She actually doesn't, doesn't use it as Missy, but it's interesting that she almost like leads the fact that she might. She sort of does. It's, yeah. it's subtle. It's a lot more subtle than her normal speaking voice. Yeah, that's the, true. Uh, but it's interesting, that thing of, of the implication that perhaps Time Lord's accent sense can change depending on their surroundings. With their body and their face. It, yeah. it, I think it's kind of an amazing uh, kind of like metatextual thing that we expect that the Doctor is going to be from the UK, but it could be anywhere within the UK. <laughs> yeah. So so he, he could be Scottish. Maybe the next Doctor will be Welsh. Let's hope not, but it could happen. Um, 
What? <laughs> Why? Hang on. I feel like we can't let that go. Yanto <laughs> could be the doctor. It's just, <laughs> it's just an aesthetic accent thing. It wasn't like, you know, the Welsh people are bad. But I, I think it's a consideration. Like when you take on this character, you know, there's obviously different regions within this this portion of the world and you're like, okay, how natural am I going to go? If you think about accent from a point of view, the reason we have different accents is not just the the evolution of language, but also like the weather and the, the actual physicalization of like the mouth placement and all that sort of thing. Facial and that, posture. That's right. And so if you think of Capaldi's face, maybe he just looks in, like he should be Scottish. It is. Yeah, although he got the face from a Roman, so surely he should sound like he's speaking in Latin. It is. is this like the... Si- <laughs> Is this the 16th time his cheekbones have come into this conversation today? Look, his cheekbones are definitely notable. <laughs> 17th time? Better yeah. than his eyebrows. But to, go, to get to the other comment that you said, John, um, you also, you, the question was, um, did, do we feel he's fully developed as a character? I, I do. I think, I think he goes through some interesting changes. I, I must admit, Scottish grumpy is enough for me as a character. Yeah. I think that's actually quite... But, but he's not... I mean, and, but he does, he does... Like, you see a softer side of him. You see him at the end of that first arc. Like, you were talking about how the Am I a Good Man arc is, is, is a real arc. It's a oh, real I know, story I know it's an arc. It's a beautiful arc. And you get to, to the end with. of it, and he has that moment where he says, well, I'm not, not a good man. I'm not a bad man. I'm, I'm a, an idiot. I'm an idiot in a yeah. box who tries to fix things and I've done good things, I've done bad things. And The Eccleston thing actually spiked my brain in this direction because you know, the spikier characters, the, the gruffer characters have been more and more north as they go forward. <laughs> There's a cultural association with that that they're exploiting in order to craft a Doctor character and it's really fascinating that you know the other Scott Tennant adopted the English accent and, um, in order to be somewhat warmer and friendlier and romantic even. Maybe um, that's what I was thinking of when I was talking about it. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, I, I think that they, they've, used, they've used certain cultural stereotypes within the UK in order to craft certain characters, um, sorry, certain doctors in, in ways to bring in more elements and all that. But there is some cultural stereotyping going on, I think. For sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. you just also reminded me one fact we didn't throw in before about Capaldi, which was that apparently he was invited to audition for the Paul McGann telly movie. Yeah, um, he was mind one, blown. He was, dodged a bullet there. Well, no, no. This, this is the thing. He was one of the actors on the list because I was thinking about the fact that yeah, that was very much an American's idea of what a Doctor Who lead should be. But he he said though he actually didn't go to the audition because he wanted it so badly he knew he could not cope with not getting it. <laughs> And he also oh. knew that he wouldn't get it. And he knew he, he would saying. not get it. Um, oh, Petra, you, you've got a couple of uh, comments. Do you want to read one of yours out? All right, we're going with angry comment. Uh, how good would the John Sim Master reveal have been if it wasn't bloody spoiled? Uh, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen that episode. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, people. Can't you keep a secret? It would have been good. I didn't realise it was John Sim in the... In the I, I'm going to be honest. You might th- it might be people in this room who think I was an idiot. Um, but I didn't realise it was him in disguise. Yeah, I was like, that actor's really familiar to me. Who is that? And then he took the thing off. I was like, oh, that's so good. Yeah. I was so excited. It was great. I rewatched that episode and I knew it was him, but I was just... I think he did an exceptional job. He did a great job. Great job. But of keeping the same mannerisms so that when you do rewatch it and you're like, you know it's, it's him... You can enjoy his kind of playfulness of like tricking everybody. Actually, read the other one while we're talking about cheekbones. Okay. <laughs> 
Capaldi's doctor might not have been a romantic hero, but he was the sexiest doctor we've had, at least until tomorrow. <laughs> and for the listener, that is uh, a few weeks ago with, or, or whenever, timey wimey time, your yeah, months, yeah. Okay. whenever you're listening to this episode. It says at the start when it was recorded. It's, you say okay. it, in fact. Yeah, but they're like, yeah, you do, yeah. But they're listening cool. to this hundreds of years in the future. Oh, We're all yeah. dead. <laughs> they're on a space station somewhere. <laughs> Um, space speaking. Okay, we've got a couple more. Um, uh, did anyone notice the similarities between Clara's exit and Bill's? Both killed horribly, then revived, and travelling through time and space with another woman until they die again. That's true. Basically, they do get the same ending, don't I they? I would argue that's the ending of every Doctor Who character now. Though. It does seem to be everyone <laughs> dies, so yeah, Rose, oh, and then I died. Didn't really, I meant I moved. You know, <laughs> I and get them mixed up. Yeah, yeah, and that's when, you know, Donna's going to die. Actually, no, she fell over. And, the, you know, the whole thing about that, there seems to be this endless thing of, of no one ever dies. There's that episode in which um, Madame Vastra and Jenny, and Jenny's dead for, like, five minutes or something, and we're all meant to cry about it. It's like, like she's coming back. We know. No one dies. There's very few people who die, die. I mean, even, like, Amy and Rory's departure is treated like a death, but they also are not dead. Like, this, they're cut off from their family and friends for no logically explainable reason because they Lo- could just Logic take... is the beginning of wisdom, just not Stop the it, end. stop it. <laughs> they don't... Yeah, you're right, they don't die, so nobody dies. Um, but, having said that, these two, I think this comment is, is bang on because their departures are much more similar than the others. They do, they do, you know, they are in this weird suspended between life and death state and they go off and have intergalactic adventures with somebody else um, of their own, which we don't see, you know, but we, you know, a a million fanfics are based on, I hope. I should, I really, I keep meaning to get around to reading some of those. I think that's why I was disappointed with um, the departure of Bill because it was just so similar. And they'd started to build up this character and then just sent her off in the exact same way that they sent off the last one. And it's, yeah, it annoyed me. And turned her into a Cyberman, which we'd already seen twice yes, in the show yeah, already with yeah. Rose's mum in the alternate universe well, and with Danny Pink. And with Danny Pink, which was yeah. only the season, two seasons before, which yeah. seems odd. Uh, anyway, we've got one last question. We'll, we'll move on. Um, it is deeply unfair that we won't get to see Capaldi without Moffat. Is there a Doctor Who writer or showrunner you would like to have seen write for Capaldi? Is Davies? <laughs> I would have liked to really? see that. Yeah, yeah cool. <laughs> Yeah, I can't imagine a Capaldi Davies though, because yeah, I find. What have you done? Do you reckon? I I don't even know. I don't no. even know. I just um I I think I'm only saying that because I respected what Davies did, and I highly respect what Capaldi did. So, so mashing those two talents together could have possibly been an incredibly interesting thing. Um, Moffat just didn't do it for me. I got annoyed with him. <laughs> As everybody is, apparently. <laughs> is there any, anybody, I haven't heard anybody stick up for Moffat today. Or <laughs> no, Moffat has. Oh, no, no, no. Look, Moffat has brilliant ideas. He's Don't even great, try. He does, honestly, he's, he does great stuff. Some he of has my great best concepts. friends are Moffat. Mo- Mo- Moffat. Moffat also, watching them back, he writes brilliant scenes. He can write, he writes, he can write an excellent episode. He can also write an excellent scene. They don't necessarily always... Happened. Is it the overall arc that's the problem? I yes. think I think it's the hit and miss. And because I, I, I think he's he's he is brilliant. He's a brilliant writer. He's done some amazing work, and he he's very clever. Like when he wants to do a clever episode, you know, when he's not too busy. And this is not something that just Moffat did. This was also a problem in the Russell T Davies era when he's not hitting you over the head with how clever is this? It's so clever, uh, and the characters will tell you it's clever. Uh, but 
um, when he's not doing that, it's also that the mistakes that he makes are ones that he repeats. And for me, that was what that was what grated with me. It wasn't that he made mistakes. Like every writer has made mistakes. Russell T Davies wrote stuff in his era that I thought was awful, not you know that didn't work or that was ethically dubious or whatever. But he tended not to repeat those mistakes, whereas Moffat has repeated. I think them. Davies had sensibly all emotion and not necessarily very good at sort of the structure or storytelling. And I think sometimes yeah. Moffat is all structure and storytelling with no human emotion. And so people do. So want we need to merge them somehow into a hybrid. Yeah, into a hybrid. <laughs> 1963 was the birth of Doctor Who, but also saw the first album from the Beatles. The Beatles have featured in Doctor Who many times over the following decades, alongside Fleetwood Mac, Britney Spears, Victorian novelty ditties, The Streets, Kylie Minogue, classical music, Nick Cave and twiddly widdly jazz. In telly, the word diegetic means sound the characters can hear diegetic music are the songs that the characters have chosen to play and diabetic music is what Ben's over enthusiastic spell checker calls it (laughs) isn't that sweet the doctor has been known to play the recorder the organ the harp and the spoons but it was Capaldi who embraced the electric guitar and that's not to mention all that singing so, what does the music tell us about who? So, Capaldi, playing guitar, wearing the sunglasses. Cool or midlife crisis? What's our, what's our take on that? Can it not be both? <laughs> it could be both. Actually, that's, that's, actually, that's probably... If they'd been normal sunglasses, I would have been more on board. I thought the Sonic sunglasses were a bit weird. It, it was cool. It was so cool. It was pretty cool. The tank, the tank was too much. With the guitar, I could never. Yeah, I could never quite decide if the guitar was cool or midlife crisis. I just couldn't. It was the jokes about the tank that was too dad joke for me. That was the line. Yeah, it just it just didn't make any I sense. I put it online. That's great. That's <laughs> oh, so dumb. But you know, like fully embracing the dumb, though. I think mm. is is fair to say. I has the dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was funny looking back over the music in the show because the Beatles. It's really interesting how Doctor Who comes out in that same year as, as the Beatles' first album, and we have a scene in I think it's the Chase where the. Yeah, where they've got the uh, time-space visualiser out and they're watching things. Yeah, and they watch a bit of Top of the Pops. And William Hartnell makes these encouraging comments about the Beatles. Now, considering who that character is and the age and how he's personified at that time, to have him being a fan of the Beatles, I think it's actually a really interesting choice for so the, the, the production team. So the OC of its time? In every way. <laughs> don't, we don't talk about the OC and, um, and it was interesting because I read online that uh, the same year as that episode the Bond film, the equivalent Bond film maybe Thunderball perhaps, um, he makes a reference to wearing earplugs at a Beatles concert, so you've got Bond being on <laughs> and William Hartnell going, bring it on and that's a really interesting choice for the team to make Yeah, there's a lot of, not just diegetic music but there's also a lot of references to songs um throughout the episode where they've they've a character has delivered a line that refers to a song a couple that i pulled out was burn baby burn hey missy you're so fine oh yes yes this is a big fan of tony basil yeah yeah yeah. here come the drums here come the drums um and my absolute favorite the reference like if we're talking about keeping it cool and relevant 
Two weeks of Mysterious Girl by Peter Andre, I was begging for the brush of death's merciful hand. These words are an earworm, a song you can't stop humming. Yeah, yeah, that was great. I, I watched that episode today, actually, and I was like, I'd forgotten there's a Peter Andre reference. I did, I did try and cover that song, but uh, speaking of keeping it relevant, um, like Doctor Who is also very ahead of its time when we're talking about uh, Hartnell digging on Beatles. Um, nine Rick rolled the world before Rick rolling was a thing. You go, you look back in the episode of Father's Day, and there's like never gonna give you yeah. up on the on the, and then and then it turns into the streets. Yeah. It's just, just, so we're a relevant so re- sci-fi show. It's a, it's a reverse Rickroll. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I found it quite because looking at the the classic series, there's not that many. Pop songs. Well, actually, in it. the weird thing is, looking at the classic series, there kind of is up until and including the Pertwee era. The weird thing is, it stops in the Tom Baker oh, era. Oh yeah, and in, and from that period on until unless until you have McCoy. specific episodes. And then McCoy is the bit where it comes back in again because we have it used obviously as, as a time yeah. reference in things like McCoy seems to have all this like fifties like fifties and sixties yeah. stuff to, to be uh, establishing period in a way. But it's interesting yeah. that we don't have it at all in the time. For example, Tom Baker is when it's at its most pop culture peak, probably, and Do it's. You, do you think it, it does not respond to pop culture? Do you think it didn't? Ha- they didn't have maybe the budget to pay for the rights well, to use those songs. They or? re-recorded some of those songs and they made that part of the episode of a, a brand new. But but it is funny how often they had like the Beatles, yeah, in the sixties, yeah. and, and and like you're saying, the fact that the BBC was, was able Michael, to do that. It was before Michael Jackson owned the rights, though, wasn't it? Yes. So but, they could afford it. Well, the Doctor, like during the Fourth Doctor, he's he's actually very rarely on contemporary Earth. He's usually on other planets and, and doing stuff out in space where if you suddenly heard, like, 20th century pop music, you'd be like, this is weird. So rather than the Spice Girls, you'd have the Space Girls. <laughs> Un- unless you were on Arrakis. Spice must flow. We have made more references to other science fiction in this episode than ever before. But one of the things I actually really like about Doctor Who is when it uses that music incongruously. Like, yeah, I like, I like foxes singing Don't Stop Me Now on the Orient Express in space. To me, that is a perfect summation of Doctor Who. That's what it should be doing. I, I have a comment about that. Um, I thought that was a really interesting choice. And um, uh, what is it like? Uh, I think it's Dark City at the beginning... Mm. They go into some jazz club and some. It's, I think it's Jennifer Connolly. I think she's singing. She's not actually she's, singing, but it is. Her she's character, singing yeah. "Fever" and I, and watching that. I'm a jazz musician, right? So I watch it and going, could you have picked a more boring, cliched yeah. tune? That, that, but it's the same kind of setting on the Orient Express, but it's a, a really unexpected song yeah, and they've and, done it in a different style. So that, I, I that really like that. I really like it. And that's what I was thinking about actually the, the, to one step, the Martian, the film. One of the things I think is playing all those classic disco songs over the Martian, it makes it so different to anything else you have seen. And that's why I think when Doctor Who does that, when it's playing Britney Spears at the end of the world claiming that it's an ancient hymn or, uh, in fact, when Vicky mentions the Beatles as being classical music back in the Hartnell days. You know, it's... That, that's got a whole other layer to to it which really works but when it's just like it can seem very um just gimmicky because like, in the modern series there's so much more contemporary music and i think um or, or, or modern pop music and i think partly that's because of the shortening of the stories now they don't have four episodes to set a tone and a setting and so a piece of music is a really quick way to establish where you are and a tone of what's happening so whether it's diegetic and it's in the show or whether it's it's not and it's outside of it a bit 
Um, it's it's a really quick shorthand way to go. This is where we are. And to me, well, I, I like that it's when it does the opposite. Of that so when it is playing Dusty Springfield on a planet that's an acid factory, you know, or acid mines or whatever, and you're going, this is amazing. It makes no sense. I love that. That's what I, I like. Yeah. Well, it, that, but even that is like that's giving you a shorthand into the personality of the people working in that that's acid true. mine yes. is that they are not what you expect. They're not yeah. like, you know, this like stereotypical, you know, um, going down the pit, like mining types like that you would see in some shows. Like they've got more personality and more yeah. depth than that. They're very clever choices. Yeah. Well, exactly. In the Pertwee years, it turns out there was quite a lot of, um, yeah, Fleetwood Mac was the famous one because it had to be cut out of the DVD because they couldn't clear it. But there was various prog rock bands that were used quite... I was amazed know. to find out there's a piece of Emerson, Lake and Palmer music in the, in the colony in space. And yeah. it's not diegetic like it's used as the soundtrack <laughs> and i'm like what i don't remember this um and i listened to it it's so evocative it's That's such because we wiped your mind remember how when we first started this journey i was that like person in the corner going look at these nerds talking about stuff and that was all weird um yeah i created a spotify playlist of all the songs <laughs> we'll share it on the social we'll media. share it it's, what, what, uh, it's what wacky. Was, what was the most surprising on the Spotify playlist? What really threw you? Look, I mean, it, it covers everything from, you know, Beatles, of course, and, Fleet, and Fleetwood Mac and all that sort of thing. There's a lot of covers of, you know, 1950s uh, or jukebox tunes. Most of um, which are from Revelation of the Daleks. Yeah. But uh, there's also, yeah, like the DJ. I, I want to see that episode with the DJ, like, mashing up fire and, and all that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, that's um, the sales. Yeah. But, um, but there's also, there wasn't as much. 80s synth as I was expecting. Like, it's mostly in the soundtrack, right? Yeah, yeah, but but if we're talking about music setting the scene for a yeah, and it's period, weird. in that period they stop they stop using yeah. popular music, and it's an interesting choice, presumably. And like you're saying, the the, um, the soundtracks from that year are often very much emulating the sounds that were were current and popular. But again, it, they didn't spend a lot of time on contemporary Earth in the 80s. Like, Sylvester McCoy only visits, like, 1980s Earth a, a very small number of times. And, and you're but, like, but with a show like Mordred Undead would have been greatly helped to, to use that immediate oh, yeah. 77, 83 thing. You could have, you know, you could have... That would have been amazing, yeah. Yeah. That quite strongly, uh, and I loved uh, too when we were watching back through Capaldi, getting like a, a, an alien bar full of ne'er do wells listening to Nick Cave was just—I <laughs> was quite charmed by that. Um, you mentioned quotes too before, of course. Uh, David Tennant quotes Kylie Minogue uh, in *The Idiot's Lantern*, and then a few years later, she's so she becomes one of those rare people who both exists in the Doctor Who universe <laughs> <laughs> and has appeared in Doctor Who. I think Ken Dodd possibly is another one. They need to use a Billy Piper song. Oh, oh that'd be great! Actually, oh. honey, really... honey to the bee. Yeah. 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 Oh my God, that's why the bees have disappeared. <laughs> No, I was actually considering that Jamiroquai is, is, you know, he himself has albums of, you know, space uh, lyrics and stuff like that, and he's a UK-based performer. I was really surprised that there wasn't any Jamiroquai used in an episode. So I'm wondering who at the BBC he's pissed off. <laughs> I, I, still, I still think it's amazing there's no Pink Floyd ever even mentioned in the show. I, I'm amazed there, there wasn't more Bowie. It's funny, in some ways, Bowie seems so perfect to be in Doctor Who, but in, also at the same time, Bowie is almost... Is Doctor Who. Like He's go, Doctor well, Who, I know, in, right? As in they're yeah. doing the same thing in different forms. It might almost be overkill to... Yeah, Doctor Who is like the man who fell to Earth, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Celeste, did you... 
Oh, I'm just trying to think. I mean, you lot have covered so much. I, I'm trying to remember the episode in the Capaldi season where oh. it's... Thank you. Thank you, all of you people who remember stuff that I'm not going to, um, where he intros it with Beethoven's symphony on... Yeah, yeah, what was it, number five on the guitar and uses yeah. that as the entire arc for the episode, like the beginning to the end. Sorry? Yeah, it's after the flood, before the flood. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that was a really clever use of music and it's not contemporary or anything, but the way that it was used to tell that story was, was brilliant, I thought. Uh, it's I was just thinking before, because um, also if you look at other things, Star Trek seems a really obvious one to look at. God, is that coming up again? Traditionally in things like Star Trek, when you want to show the captain is a serious person, you have them listen to classical music. You know, classical music becomes a, a big thing. And occasionally you'd have 1950s rock and roll in American science fiction for some reason. It was very occasionally rare. you have sabotage. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. That's usually on the ad, though. You just put that on every ad. And, and it was interesting that Doctor Who was embracing slightly weirder choices when it, when it did embrace them. And I think that's a, that's a slightly American thing, too, because when you have the telemovie, the music that the Doctor's listening to is like very sort of very old-fashioned like he's listening to that song on the on the yeah. phonograph and he's talking about madame butterfly and puccini and, and there was one generic rock song in there on the soundtrack but i've, I've everyone's forgotten the name of the band so my absolute fle- favorite piece of classical music is nossians and when missy started playing that i was losing my shit like we're talking about the, the score particularly is there to to make you feel and to make you part of the story and diegetic music is a very specific choice that the the characters are reacting to and they of course you get to see their feelings and their reactions to that and I thought about what is like a pivotal song that every time I watch an episode and I hear the music I'm like doing this you know where I'm going people Vincent and the Doctor yeah Yeah. that song musically without all of that production doesn't quite do it it's that sound that is associated with that story that I can't not watch that episode without tearing up. And Paul you... Vincent could only hear it in mono. <laughs> Too soon? Yeah. Uh, so does it, just, just one last question. Are there any, any favourite songs that have cropped up in Doctor Who that we haven't mentioned that you want to give a quick mention that you really enjoyed? It's that scene where, where John Simsmaster is dancing with his wife and everything's gone Yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah, everything's gone to hell and you can see it do it. He's being this, like, horrible person dancing around joyfully. She's covered in bruises, you know, the world's going to shit and it's it's just an amazing juxtaposition, I thought. You've got, yeah, that music used with that thing. I'm surprised they didn't use Filthy Gorgeous for that one. No, because uh, I think they very deliberately chose that song because the lyrics that you first hear are I can't decide if you should live or die and that's and it's the master's he's literally going am I going to kill you or I'm just going to torture you for a bit longer and you're like yeah he just he just comes across as being so blatantly evil in that scene it was a brilliantly crafted scene by the use of that music is it is it evil or is it like He's a bit like kind of like Two Face, like he could go either way. Like he just has no moral compass whatsoever. So yeah, yeah, he, he hasn't decided. He's like, which Missy also shows later on. Yeah, Missy's the whole, I might kill you. Oh, so something nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, one, actually, one I just want to mention briefly because it's just such a great song um, is uh, Mr. Blue Sky by ELO, which is, you know, it's not a, it's not a great episode. The first half, I think, is quite good, Love of Monsters. But, um, but just that is such a joyous song. And every time it's used in anything, it's just always 
a delight. It just always gives this energy, and it's so exciting when it pops up yeah. in that episode. Yeah. Um, I really like... There's a couple from the Capaldi era that I really like, and I just I did cheat and look up the name, but, well, I did have to look up one of them, because there's that great bit where... Uh, he, they just, they just. I mean, it's yakety sax, so they call it the Benny Hill theme. In the, in the girl who died, when they make the video of the like the aliens posing as as the Maya, as they're posing as like you know the gods, and he's like, I'm going to send this video, and I'll put yakety sax over it, and everyone's going to know you're an idiot. Um, I thought that was hilarious, uh, and he like he could not have made that any more ridiculous. It was such a perfect choice of song, um, and I also, I mean, in, in hindsight, love will tear us apart when um, Bill meets um, Puddle Girl is quite like... Heather! She has a name. They have a whole discussion together that's not about the doctor. I was going to say her name and then I stuck with Puddle Girl because I'm like, no one will know who I mean if I say Heather. (laughs) Actually, can I just mention the Bechdel reference? There's that lovely moment in Murder on the Orient Express in which Clara says to... to, to, No, no, the woman whose mother has died. She goes, oh, what's up with us two ladies here talking about a man? Let's talk about something else. And it's it's such a lovely moment. It was great. It's like like the show's waving a flag. (laughs) On that note, is there any, any last thoughts about the music in the show you want to say before we wrap things up? There is a jazz tune called Softly is in the Morning Sunrise. It basically has the same chord changes as the Doctor Who theme. So whenever I play it, if a singer calls it, when I go to my solo, I just play the Doctor Who theme. It generally takes them about like 32 bars to go, what? what's going on? And they're like, oh my God, I see what's happening. And then, and then I just go again and they're like, oh, you made the joke, now you're going for round two? And I'm like, yep, just, just going to play it again. Commit, baby, commit. Well, I think, I think that pretty much brings us to the end though, uh, of today, doesn't it, John? It does, it does, because, you know, it's, it's Doctor Who Eve and we all have to get home to be in bed. And so because there is a Bowie song used in the most stellar example of a Doctor Who episode ever, Aliens of London, to close out the show, we have Adam Rudiger playing Starman. And until next time we meet... Thank Thank you. you. It's It's good. good. Keep warm. I don't think Bowie himself knew what chords he was playing on the guitar at the beginning of this song. Um, The sheet music list is uh, B flat major 7 sharp 11 on an A bass. Which, I mean, I can play that, but it's not going to sound good.
Thank you. You have been listening to Splendid Chats. We'd like to thank this episode's Splendid Chaps, Celeste Little, Adam Rudiger, and Adam Ford. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us at SplendidChaps.com and at Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott. Until next time, thank you, it's good, keep on. Keep on.